0: Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, this is Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Culture and the City podcast series. My excellent guest today is uh, Kate Merrick, who is the Director of Urbis, a major Australian planning consultancy. She's the former Chief Executive of the Hornery Institute, and she's an expert in all things cities, and particularly city precincts cultural precincts, innovation precincts, rail-led precincts. We talk about all these things in this rich and insightful interview. Uh, We also talk about her PhD, which I'm I'm very envious to say has led her to see cities all over the world recently, and she talks a bit about that. And we end with some really positive stuff about what the Olympics might do for Brisbane and its legacy. So a very rich and insightful conversation. Enjoy it. Uh, Join me uh, with Kate Merrick. Hello, Kate Merrick. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well this morning, thanks, Tim. How are you doing?
0: I'm, I'm doing brilliantly for a man who had to get up early to do this. But apart from that, everything's fine. And how, how, are, you've you got how are you up there in Queensland?
1: Uh, Queensland's looking bonny this morning. I, uh, I was in Melbourne yesterday. It was only two degrees. And it does remind me a bit why I chose to make Queensland my home. So beautiful morning up here in the River
0: City. So one of the things I, I never explain to people who are listening internationally is uh, although I'm obviously a, a Welshman, where are you from originally?
1: I'm from brighton so brighton. you know closer to home than than australia but actually really kind of the other side of the country very yeah. different kind of place to grow up
0: but it's just that I, I live in new south wales and i come from as i think of it old south wales and uh but the scale i just think it's really important to tell people internationally because they get no idea of how big these places are but i think i'm right in saying that new south wales is something like about 12 times bigger than the uk or something it's just kind of a massive kind of you know tasmania is five times the size of Wales, where I'm, where I'm from. So, you know, mm-hmm. Queensland is huge and and its main cities are Brisbane and...
1: Uh, Cairns, Townsville, yeah. Rockhampton. We've got a number of cities, but they are, because we're such a vast state, the cities are quite spread out. And that's something I, I find my family overseas don't really understand, that you can travel from Brisbane to Cairns and it can take you as long as it would take you to travel the length of the British Isles.
0: Yeah, and th- it's a good place to start because you are, um, much traveled. You have written and thought about and researched lots of cities and places internationally. So you're well placed to have this conversation. Um, and it's going to circle around a number of things, but uh, we we will have a, a culture in the city conversation. We will also have, I think, given that Queensland's going to host the uh, Olympics or Brisbane and uh, I guess Southeast Queensland, we'll talk about all this, uh, going to host the Olympics. We should talk about that because these are major cultural events. I'm I'm obsessed with the idea that sport is indeed culture and I uh, oh, I, I think
1: I, in Australia sport is definitely culture and look, anyone who supports a English Premier League team knows that the team you support is the culture that defines you
0: Well that's a problem for me because I'm basically an Arsenal supporter it was also a Cardiff City me too <laughs> <laughs> the things you discover about people when you podcast. Well,
1: I knew I always knew that I did like him. If you said <laughs> Spurs, we would have been in a disastrous territory.
0: No, my father was a a, a big Arsenal fan, and uh, he uh, no 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 we 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 grew up as an Arsenal loving family, and uh, and in fact he knew nothing about rugby. He was uh, although I, you know I, I am his loyal son. I did disapprove of his ignorance of rugby. So, um, but he was a sporting nut, and uh, when when he died uh we were you know r- reminded of uh, by looking at his memorabilia of how passionate he was about arsenal so but the reason i raise all this is because it's partly a cultural and city discussion with kate who has uh, got so many things to talk about I'm, but i want to talk i want to start in an unusually scholarly place because of the many people that i know in this urbanist world and that we've had on the podcast i'm not sure that many are both a kind of, kind of experienced and I think very talented uh, advisor and consultant in this world of urban planning and thinking and all this kind of stuff. But somebody actually who's making a PhD out of their passion and their interest. But what is your PhD about, Kate Merrick?
1: Well, first of all, it might seem a bit strange to be starting a PhD when you're quite so uh, mature in career and mature in life, you know, I'm in my, my mid fifties. But my research project is a passion project. And it's also really topical in terms of the future of Australian cities. So. In Brisbane, where I live, we're making very significant public and private investment in precincts underpinned by rail connectivity, and obviously that's a topic across Melbourne, Sydney and Perth. So when I I thought a couple of years ago about embarking upon this, I really wanted to try to understand the extent to which a transport placemaking approach could amplify the intergenerational value that we get out of these investments in transport. And i was interested in how transport changes not just the geography of the city but the social culture of the city that ultimately not many people ride the train just to ride the train they ride the train for the places that it allows them to go to the opportunities and experiences that it brings them closer to and i candidly i lost a really big project uh, and i was absolutely gutted because to lose a project in your own home city that you feel very passionately about and to know you're going to have to live with the consequences is is, that's quite a big thing to swallow for somebody who's a very competitive like me and b has quite a lot of city loyalty to to brisbane and so i i wanted to go back to university to explore the ideas that i had had and and see whether they actually had any legitimacy when i looked at them in fact and i've been very lucky because i've been able to study under peter newman at curtin university and peter is not only a very delightful person but he's also a, an incredible guru in this space. And his way of supervising is quite light touch. But he'll drop in a little idea at the end of one of our tutorial sessions, and I'll go away and realize how acutely he's actually listened and how well he's redirected me without, apparently, appear to have done so. Well, so- just,
0: just as an aside for people to position this, I mean, I didn't realize that you were doing it with Peter Newman is also one of my favorite people. He's uh, an intellectually somebody I pay lots of attention to. Uh, even though he can be crazy sometimes but essentially he <laughs> is mostly correct and uh, he 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 played a really important part in international thinking around um the, the car and the city actually and, absolutely uh, you know and so all
1: the work that he did around peak car phenomena is yeah. something that i think in australia we really should have been listening to more acutely ahead of ahead of now Um, and I I think it must be interesting for him to look back over the last 30 or 40 years of his career and see that all of his predictions are actually coming true so I do consider myself to be very privileged to have the opportunity to study with him he's very thought-provoking but uh,
0: have you found that that you some of your things that you'd picked up the wisdom that you'd picked up as a a consultant in land use and transport integration did you find that all that fit very well with your academic learning? Or did you find there were contradictions that actually you'd been wrong?
1: (laughs) Um, Oh God, imagine having to admit I've been wrong. The first thing I would say is everybody should do a PhD because um, even if if you don't believe yourself to be particularly academically inclined, the discipline of actually thinking about something so deeply and having to be extremely objective in how you create your evidence base and analyze it is actually an amazing discipline. somebody who seeks to advise others it's made me a much much sharper consultant i hold myself to a much higher standard of evidence than i had beforehand that actually i i really do need to make sure that i have taken a very rigorous approach to any evidence that i put together or put in front of a client but equally i think for my academic practitioner colleagues, I've also introduced a measure of storytelling. So I've helped them to understand that this interface between academic thinking and industry practice is an incredibly important nexus, and yet we speak very different languages. And if we're not able to take our ideas and to land them in a very practical and applied context, then the ideas are nothing but thought bubbles. So I think of myself as a translational practitioner, really somebody who's helping to take these big ideas that are shaping the world, but are somewhat esoteric, and turn them into a set of very practical or actionable uh, elements that a project can pick up and run with.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny, because although people, I think, might assume that I, um, you know, Dr. Tim Williams, uh, have a PhD in something to do with what I work on and talk about, I don't actually, except in a very distant sense, that it's actually about a kind of uh, history of of a Welsh town, and I got very, very interested, and I've always been very interested in how places come together Mm. How they function, uh, how they live and die. I've always been very interested in that, so I think that's where it comes from. So I'm very intrigued by this. The um, just one more thought about this. The uh, I, I'm very. It's very important to me that not only do do we do the kind of business world that you and I are both in really learn as much as possible from some academic kind of overviews, and I, that's part of part of what I think I've been doing for the last 20, 25 years is actually reading stuff that other people haven't read and then pretending it's my original thinking that's essentially what i've been doing but i said but bringing it in but i think the other the other thing is important as well is is the um is bringing the is kind of bringing the real world into the academic world and uh, and you know the business models that business has i've been astonished sometimes that people don't seem to know i mean you know uh, you know one of my obsessions and we'll get on to our topic but one of my, one of my obsessions has always been you know, do people realize that house builders internationally, developers have a, stand, have a business model, at 22% return or whatever it is on capital employed? And actually, that's quite important to un- to understand. So I'm very, I'm very, for me, quite passionate about, you know, that there are things to learn in these two cultures, you know, uh, business and academia. And we haven't quite got it uh, right as a kind of regular occurrence. But I'm delighted that, uh, and I, I, by the way, I always find in your work, and I'm not just saying this, I always find in your work and your thinking, it was always very rigorous, Kate. Before you, you know, went off to do academic stuff. But you, you think actually that you are indeed learning things from your. Uh, oh. You've been, yeah. But but that's partly because I've got to explain to people how exciting this is. You're not just the average student sitting in front of a. <laughs> a book or even online you've been to see lots of these cities that you are
1: absolutely And so that i I have loved this it has been such a revelation to me and because most of the academic thinking has been done during covid when i couldn't travel i've had this unique and privileged opportunity to say you know i've actually worked and done project work in 17 cities around the world in, in every continent and you know that in itself is quite unusual so you get to see a city from the ground up when you're working on a renewal or a regeneration project there with community stakeholders you hear the city through their ears and you see it through their eyes and then i got this hiatus of two and a half years where i didn't travel but where i looked at 22 cities around the world so many that i'd worked in some that i hadn't but i only looked at them through data and then i was able to zoom in a little bit closer and say let's pick some case study projects so i looked in depth in in london at a couple of large rail terminus and regeneration schemes at London Bridge Station and at King's Cross St Pancras. And then I looked at the impact of the Jubilee Line Extension out towards where I used to work at Olympic Park. And I looked at different station sites of what had happened there. And the fascination of having an inherent set of assumptions that are, were born out of practice and then overlaying a data set was like magic. It was like seeing something appear in a crystal ball and resolve so with such clarity. And then I've, I've just come back, so I actually went back spent some time doing the fieldwork observations in these places and suddenly cogs word and things fell into place and I understood why they happened the way they happened but it that is an incredible privilege to be given that opportunity but it that's also not to say it's been unbelievably hard work so anybody who thinks I hand out a phd like a smarty should think again it's the hardest thing i've ever done to hold down 30 or 35 hours of academic work on top of my job it takes you know, a lot of other people being prepared to step up and do other things in my life that I haven't now got the time for.
0: So you make me uh, sentimental and nostalgic about my own PhD process, which was an agony that took nine years. <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> oh God! Get... I have to finish no. mine in three. So, you know, I can't. No, no, I don't no. have the uh, the no. longitude of nine years would kill me, and no. I think
0: I'm, the I'm, intensity I'm, of it. I'm, I'm the I'm the I'm the child of public sector largess, yes, and I, I uh, essentially. They, they indulged me for too long. Now, these cities that you've been visiting, right? And w- one of the th- one of the ways into our broader discussion, or or, or, re- or even our narrower discussion about culture in the city, but you've become very interested and very expert in. I think the whole idea of uh, I don't like the word. I'm not sure you'd like the word, but the word precinct is out there. As a, and I think we mean place, but I think we mean uh, a place with a with a probably a boundary, and then pe- I'm happy yeah. to call that a, a precinct. But but you're I think you're very interested in in. One is land use and transport integration, you know, because like, you've been looking at transport, and so we should talk about that. But also, this whole discussion has, has become also connected with things like innovation precincts and culture precincts, and or innovation districts and culture districts. So I think I'll, I want a bit of that conversation uh, as well. So place place has become internationally more important in our in our thinking. Do you think in, in you know. I
1: think place has always been important but it's been quite intrinsic. And so it's it's almost been disguised in much of our thinking, you know, as a younger practitioner, I worked for Lendlease and place has always been the way that they understood how the community enjoys the product that they create. So that the place is the way that we connect to it. But I I suppose that more recently, I've come to understand that place is how I leave my legacy. It, my memories, my experiences of a city get layered into that place and then, Every time I go back to it, I feel a stronger sense of attachment. So the rhythm of my life in a place in the city adds to that place in the city. And I find that quite an interesting concept. I'm you know, not a particularly formally religious person, but I like the idea that my footsteps in the city build part of that city story. And I think place is that important mediator between the physical fabric and the the emotional experience. Or what did Richard Sennett call it? He called it the body and the soul, the built fabric being the body of the city and our human experience of it being its soul. And, And I guess that's how I think about place. That's the connection. It's the glue.
0: Only, i may commend you on your your reference to richard sennett which is a, a first in this in the two podcasts because <laughs> you may have been reading books so i think this is uh very important. Yes, sadly
1: i do read quite a lot of books and <laughs> i actually you know i remember reading him when i was a lot younger and thinking oh i don't really understand all of this what's this all about give me some richard florida it's much easier to digest yeah, but as an yeah. older person i've really come back and started to have a look at at the underlying text of much of what he's written about and the importance of city as a as a living thing, as something that we contribute to as well as consume, I, is something I've become increasingly interested in, that actually if we don't contribute to the cities we're part of, we'll only get the city we deserve and it will be a shallow city, a city of veneer, not a city of substance.
0: It's interesting, just a, a moment on this word place, the, uh, internationally has become interesting again. I completely agree with you, in a sense for everyday people it never went away and actually for developers paradoxically people get this wrong i think i think you're absolutely right and you having worked at a senior level for uh Lend-Lease, and we'll talk we'll we'll tell people about what you've done and stuff in a biography but i said but essentially the paradox is, although we all you know all of us can at certain points demonize developers and all this kind of stuff at the end of the day they actually have always quite cared about place because that's of material significance and value to them whereas part of the problem and the paradox has been public sector uh, bodies have often found it very difficult to work at a place level because they're all very siloed and and in fact you know some of the things that communities complain about with development is not the architecture and it's not necessarily what the developers done but the failure of public sector bodies to do what they said they were going to do which is to provide the supporting infrastructure in the right place at the right time to enable this place to to work so i'm I'm out there, Funny enough, although I can be as critical as you like about some development cultures, at the end of the day, that place thing always mattered. You know, it was hidden in the word location, location, location. You know what I mean? But it always kind of mattered. It always kind of mattered. And I think that we just need, you know, I think public sector is caught up. And I, I just want to say something about that quickly, that in New South Wales, to be fair, although I'm not entirely sure where it's going now, but up until recently, they were actually one of the best states in Australia, and I think maybe internationally, around trying to get their government, the, the state government in New South Wales, to cohere around the places that people care about and try and get the public sector organised and coordinated around servicing places rather than just their siloed departmental needs.
1: Absolutely. And I think you could extrapolate that even a bit further, because when you think about a city, and we started considering the idea of precincts, That we can end up if we're not careful with a bunch of precincts which are great places and then a bunch of non-places or placeless places between them because the elements that don't fall under the control of a particular authority or a a private sector developer get left behind so it's important that we think of of places a more coherent thing that actually the the way we travel between key destinations in the city also have to be imbued with qualities of place that it's it's not quite as binary as I'm in a place. I'm not in a place.
0: No, no, I, and I think we to, to bring this to this moment, and then we'll we'll go off and talk about some cultural aspects. But the, uh, the this this moment of where we've been through, where the kind of COVID, the lockdowns, and the and they kind of you know, and and the positive thing that might come out come out of that. Although I, I'm against all forms of false idealism, and you know, but essentially people, I think there is some reality behind the idea that a lot of people have rediscovered within about ten or fifteen minutes of their home. You know, and that you know, and particularly in Australia, where actually you you can live a slightly cocoon kind of life before COVID, where you get up in a place and then you get on a bus and you go into the CBD, and effectively you don't do as much outside in your locality as you might expect, even though it might be very beautifully located because your world has been a bit more you know um, uh, arterial and you know all this kind of stuff. You just go into into work. So the we've seen internationally, people kind of rediscover what what I I've stolen from somebody, but I like the word nearby hoods rather than just neighborhoods nearby hoods, which essentially, you know, ten, 10 minutes walk up the road to get a coffee and all that kind of stuff. So I think that kind of almost relocalization of of place, you know, that is, is a reality at the same time, though. And this is where I want to get go to. Uh, and that, I think, plays to a human geography in, in a kind of Richard Sennett sense, and, you know, these places matter to us and they always matter to us and they, they've become a bit more important to us. I think well,
1: that is such an, sorry, that is a really important point because we, I, I look back at my life beforehand, before COVID, and it was a series of point to points. So I went from my home to the shop, I went from my home to the office, I went from my home to the airport, but I didn't actually walk the city. And, you know, uh, Peter Newman tells me quite often about the important differences between walking fabric in a city and and car tri- car-based fabric in a city. And I'd never really appreciated that until the last couple of years where I have only explored my neighbourhood or my nearby hoods. And if we were to elevate that and think about what will make a great city in the future, almost the urban value proposition is around having a series of great nearby hoods that we can actually explore like ripples.
0: Yeah, um, I, I, I think, think that right. would
1: make a great city.
0: I, I think also that the um, it's like the two to three minute city plus the Fifteen to thirty minutes. Yes, I think for me, we're, we're heading for a kind of a head and uh, sort of a, a kind of um, uh, a model of a city, which is a reinvented CBD called something else and more mixed use, and reasserted nearby hoods, and then the connections between all these things need to be thought through. And transport implications of this are rather big because the two. There's some very inadvertent things have happened, which people are not talking about very much. We we'd love to think that everybody's back on their feet and back on their cycling, and some people are, but part of the problem of the world we've been through and the hybrid working world has a challenge around this, which is that actually people are using their car quite a lot more as well, because it's outside their door now, rather than you know they go to yeah. office and leave the car behind. So I think that the people have uh, re- absolutely rediscovered the idea of the nearby hood, um an active transport can be encouraged by that but there's also a sign that people are getting back in their cars partly because of a fear of mass transit and also because if you're home two days a week you use your car quite a lot more actually so we have to think through the transport implications of all this but i want to go to this idea of the reinvented cbd and, and whether or not i you and i both think having not talked about it but i think instinctively we might be in the same place for this which is the i think we're heading for a more mixed use city centre, and I think the cultural offer of the city is going to have to be enhanced to get to to attract people out of their hybrid working world to go into a centre. What do you think about that proposition? Look,
1: I'm on record many times as saying that the CBD is the most critical asset that a city has. That if we do not have tremendous CBDs, we can't attract talent, we don't attract the best foreign direct investment, we don't get business enterprise startups at, at the same rate. But equally, I also feel that the city needs to belong to everybody. It's an inclusive asset. So in order to make this shift from a CBD as a place of... I don't even like the word CBD. No, I a do. It's, never, business district.
0: it's funny, yeah. no,
1: that's not a community. It's funny,
0: the, the, irony, the irony of my own position is that I always hated the idea of a CBD, but I'm very worried worried about it. it's, a, its disappearance now because economically, yes. it's quite important, you know.
1: Absolutely. So. And I'm not sure people understand that because I think that they see the ability to work from home, that there hasn't been an enormous economic slump as a result of working from home. But, you know, I would caution that's not, a, yeah. a, not an immediate slump, but it's a gradual diminution. And yeah. that when we don't come together to connect and we don't bring people who have knowledge and ideas into close proximity, we neither create culture, nor do we create to our maximum, and neither do we share knowledge in the most effective way. So I really want to see a reinvigoration of a city centre, but I want to see it in a different way. I want it to feel more inclusive. I want it to feel like it's a place of empathy a place of social connection and social warmth a place of experience that i choose to go to i think we have to to really inspire this sense that it's a first choice location it's a special place that as a community member not just a practitioner who comes here because my rather lovely office is here that i actually enjoy being in the streets of the city i find things to do here that are relevant to me and that it has a zeitgeist you know I, i think that the the spirit of the city should be captured most in the place where we come together, which is the city centre. So I want to feel that our reinvigorated Australian city centres capture the unique mojo, if you like, or vibe of each of our cities I that they th- decode it.
0: I think it's a very important conversation. I also think it's, it is a deeply cultural com- conversation. You see. You're you. absolutely right that the, historically, the agglomeration of cities is not just at an economic effect, it's at a cultural effect. It's, it's helped create an identity uh that w- is not there when it when you don't have that meeting of people in, in a place the innovation comes we know that historically cities have played this role mm-hmm. right but i think what's interesting about the moment and i is the extent to which th- th- it's almost as though the the technology and the hybrid working universe has unleashed a kind of anti-urbanism that we didn't know that was there you know the uh, and and that some people i always thought were understood the kind of cultural dynamism of a, a bunch of people meeting together seem perfectly happy to live a bucolic existence without people. Uh, and I and I I'm a bit shocked by it. Uh, but I, I think your point is is very important, right? Which is that we can't just reinvent it as as it was, and that's not gonna happen. But we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater either. And that yes, we live in a world that's gonna be much more interactive between suburbs and, and the center. But I think it's about reinventing the sociability and the dynamism of the centre, rather than just walking away from it. Because Absolutely. economically and culturally, we can't walk away, away from it. And that, and that, essentially, the idea that you and I talking on this screen is the same as you and I meeting, uh, you know, in a place in in Sydney or Brisbane. And the stuff that we could get out in ten minutes from meeting each other that we will in the best sense struggle to get out in an, yeah. hour, in an hour on zoom although it's going very well i must, I must <laughs> going well. but you know come on i mean i you know by the way i'm very strident about these matters and i've been criticized hugely for my kind of urbanist emphasis you know come on you know and i worry that there's a kind of laptop uh, class kind of self-absorption in this thing but and you know what i mean sort of
1: we will come to regret it I, I was just going to say you know having freshly come back from visiting, I think I counted 13 cities I was in, in six weeks. Right. And I'm not jealous, I, by the way. Getting, I'm not jealous. Sorry. Well, you were there before me. You're always no, everywhere before no. me.
0: I go, I go to one city, I'm lazy, you know, but it, it was,
1: To me, it was fascinating because the urban sociability of those cities, that, and I, you know, had a fairly, I walk a lot. I love to walk cities and see it from the pavement up, so to speak. But I felt that London, Paris, Milan, Lyon, warsaw you know i was in a really eclectic range of cities at different scales there was a social life on the streets of those cities that involved coffee aperol ideas cultural expression families and then i came back and yesterday i was in melbourne a city i'm you know pretty fond of where are all the people and it was a really stark contrast so living in brisbane we're a little bit um inured to this because we haven't had such a deep COVID experience yeah. um but there's still a reduced level of people coming to the city especially during the week i just didn't see that in europe
0: I it, it, yeah yeah but an interesting point about this the uh, research that i've been looking at uh, partly explains th- what's going what's going on so, so so here's sydney certainly didn't have as bad a COVID experience as a european city or a north american city or an asian city it just didn't right we had um you know less than a thousand people die in a population of five million, far less than that. So essentially a, a rather successful, in a sense, experience of COVID. However, we had a radical downturn in rents, uh, in, uh, and, and looking at the, some JLL research recently, one of the, one of the outliers, you know, Sydney did pr- quite, quite p- poorly economically in terms of the radicalism of the, of lockdown and the effect it had on, on CBD rents. Now, where I'm going with this is that part of it is, and this is really interesting. One is the commute, and the other, which so cities' outcomes has, has been affected by the quality and the nature and the the length of the commute. So, if the commute is easy, people often go into their yeah. offices a lot more. So, you see some of the smaller cities in the UK have had quite a return to the office, but yes. London London hasn't, as it were. And the second thing is, if you've got a big enough house that you can you can work at home in, and I think that's the Australian exceptionalism in in many senses. So, people have been able to use their home as their as their office in a way that in a more intense and dense um, a European city, they have not been able to do that because it's smaller apartments, so they go I think it to-
1: also goes, to, it, it, sorry, I'm a terrible interrupter, but it's you right? sparked another thought to me, connecting it back to the dot about public transport, because I agree there's been a lot, particularly in Australia, a lot of public transport based recidivism, so the car is parked outside my house and I only want to use my car, is actually That's because our culture is to take the car. Our culture is not to take public transport. So in a way we've been able to use COVID as an excuse to rebond with our vehicle and eschew any ideas that we're going to get on the bus or the train. But our commutes in comparison to those commutes into central London is still really quite benign. You know, there are people who are spending two hours on a train going into central London who couldn't even think about, they couldn't conceptualise the idea they took their car there because all the road pricing there, um, emissions, taxes, all of those things actually preclude them from using their car, whereas we've unfortunately allowed people to get back in the car and allowed them to go back to their bad old ways of not taking, not taking transit. But I think your point is really important, that when the commute is difficult, why would you not want to work at home? So how do we focus on not just bringing people back to the office to a great workplace environment, but also making the commute that they've got to take a whole lot easier than the commute they're used to having?
0: so i i agree with us and i think that for me rather than give up on the phenomenon of the the importance of the city center to for all sorts of reasons that we've discussed we we do reassert and reinvent but we also reacquaint people yes with with the benefits and the attractions of the city center and i think to do that we need one to reanimate the streets and uh, to really work collectively public privately to do that i think we need to re reinvent the attraction of public transport and mass transit and even if that means cities putting transport free for the next few years to get people back on the bus and back on the rail that might be what we have to do and we have to think about how we finance that but essentially otherwise we will have uh, we're seeing i'll give you a number right and so in in manhattan as one example um uh, data i saw about six months ago said a return of um Sixty percent to offices, but it's resulted in a hundred and fifteen percent return on the on the road. Yes, right,
1: which is clearly unsustainable from an emissions perspective.
0: You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City series, with your host Tim Williams. Kate Merrick of this parish, I regard you as an international expert on places and that horrible word precinct. so I want to dig a bit deeper even than we've been doing in our conversation about places and precincts now um, recently well recently in the last 10 years we've had people like the Brookings come out and talk about innovation precincts we've had cultural precincts innovation districts and precincts Um, I sometimes worry about the word precinct I sometimes think um, you know, are we, are we like reinventing a wheel? You know, is is there an older tradition uh, that will help us validate this notion of places and precincts? Now, I look to you as an expert, you've done a PhD. How many other people have done a PhD about precincts? It doesn't <laughs> sort of, it's an unusually global civilization. Is this an older concept?
1: Look, I think whilst I like to talk about precincts as the new urban black, the reality is we've had precincts for about 2,800 years and the first De facto precinct. So in my mind, a precinct is geographically bound and it has some sense of strategic entity around it. So it could be a governance mechanism. It could be a, a planning instrument. But we've had these things since the time of Alexander the Great. He he's on record as having built the first precinct in Alexandria. And he had this crazy idea. I mean, effectively, it's something between a cultural distinct district and an innovation district he created. He had this idea that for Alexandria to be the greatest port in the world, it would be where all the sailors and the people with the global knowledge would come. And that when their boats docked, he'd get them to come up to the museum and they would share their learnings and that he would have all the notable academics living there in a dormitory which I suppose we might call a hotel or even a build to rent scenario these days and he built it in a beautiful garden he had laboratories and he had the the beautiful library just close by so the scribes would capture their ideas and all this knowledge would be transferred and shared and it kind of comes back to the idea that um that egg writes about and he talks about the fundamental value of cities being the absence of space between people and entities and you know if we pick up again to the Brookings idea what they're really saying is that knowledge transmits fastest, ideas get created created more powerfully when people are very close together, when the distance between them is physically very small. So a precinct, in many ways, is just a way of talking about a large group of people with a similar interest being in a bounded space together, and some kind of organization being put over the top of them, and some kind of beautiful public realm being put underneath them. Um, and I think that is still a very powerful notion that we can build social and economic value out of today.
0: It's interesting, it's it's, in a sense, it's just a a variation of the idea that agglomeration of economic activity brings you added benefits, you know, really. I mean, Marshall wrote about this. This is where I pretend, this is the moment of the podcast where I pretend to have an economic background, (laughs) but I I am aware, I did get an O level in economics. I am aware that uh, Marshall talked about agglomeration and, and identified how, how it works. And it strikes me that precincts are just a version of that. In fact, retail clusters are just a version of, of, of that, which which I think is, so I think we, they, they, there is a temptation to sort of mystify and reify something that actually is just everyday common sense and experience, you know, bringing people together has some kind of impact.
1: Benefit. And I think it's lovely that you talked about shopping precincts when I was a little girl, which is a really long time ago now, you know, kind of at the end of post-war Britain's era. um, I lived on this in the South Coast between London and Brighton, and we had a number of shopping precincts. And to go to Crawley, to the shopping precinct, which was a pedestrianised zone full of shops that it really wasn't anything more mysterious, that was a big day out. We got dressed up, we felt special, because we were going to this place that had a purpose that we really understood. And in our little girl mind, in our family mind, it was about being more important, more prestigious, more interesting than the local town centre. So you went to the shopping precinct because something special was going to happen there. And I'm not sure we've quite, you know, perpetrated that idea today, but I do think it's the degree of intentionality that you and I are picking up on that, you know, great things can happen by coincidence over time. Um, but great things can happen faster and the amplification effect is greater when we're really conscious about why we're doing it and what elements and ingredients are needed for success. And in some of those precincts around the world that I've studied and looked at, it's the degree of intentionality, which some people might see as artificial, but I just see as deliberate, that is making them fire quicker and endure longer.
0: See, the thing is, apart from noting for an international audience and indeed for a British audience that knows the Southeast, how strange the notion of Crawley being special is to those who know this very special place I will move on to say that I do. Th- I do think you're right that the, you know, wh- wh- you know, happenstance is great, and if it's produced great outcomes, thank you very much. But we can learn to, in a sense, organise happenstance by by just learning from what the, the best that there has been, and I think that's
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think that is that is partly um, what people mean when they talk about consciously creating innovation precincts. It's, it's not like, as you say, it's not entirely artificially doing it in an impossible place it has to have certain kinds of facets and characteristics that are uh, you know evoke the kind of most naturally successful kind of versions but but it doesn't mean that you can't put these things to together um or, or add to the virtues of a place by, by consciously picking up you know as you know sort of benefits from all over the world Saying these kinds of things will work here too I think.
1: yes and i think that when you look at the work of the brookings institute as it evolved you know when julie and bruce wrote the first um, essay first of all i don't think they had any idea it would become such a seminal work but when they wrote the first essay they're really talking about elements. So they're talking about the physical, the networking and the economic elements coming together. By the time they republished in I think something like 2018, they'd started to layer on this notion of community and permeability. And they they really talk about this in two ways that an innovation precinct, just taking that as one example, shouldn't be something bounded with a wall around it that no one else can come to. It's not rarefied. It's actually a place that the community ought to move in and out of because community is an important inspiration and it's part of the market and and they saw that proximity is very valuable. But I think they also understood the other component of community, which is that bringing people together and encouraging social connection between them is what enables the trust, which builds the openness, which allows people to express their ideas more freely. And it's when the convergence of those human molecules, if you like, happens faster and more powerfully is when we get the bigger ideas
0: i like the word intentionality between what you what you said about uh innovation precincts i do want to talk a bit about the ambiguity between innovation district and innovation precinct because it's been a, it is a thing that has annoyed me slightly that the that, that i think the origin uh, you know if you go back to the brookings thing it's district not precinct even yeah. though precinct is a, it strikes me as a very american word which for me evokes police districts uh, in mm. the uh, in the us but let's just say in australia there's been a in my view, a bit of a promiscuity uh, a, a broken out around, you know, that every every city must have not just one but nine of them. Whereas, if you look to the original Brookings work, they are quite cautious and conservative about how many you can have in a city. Now, they may be overcautious because, it, you know, in a sense, one shouldn't fetishize district and precinct. Maybe all that's been said, as you were kind of alluding to, which is that there are certain kind of clusterings going on, and you might have quite a lot of them. Uh, in, a, in a city, and I, I kind of get that. What it plays to, though, and I do want to now branch out in, in this discussion, because the, the logic of everybody wanting to create innovation precincts and districts was that they got the notion that agglomeration and specialization, right, and creating certain kinds of urban density and agglomeration and connectivity and walkability and mixed uses, old and new, all that stuff, right, worked and was essential to have then covid comes along right and i want to talk about this because that you you mentioned glazer and and bruce and peter Brookings, and and you know we've we've we can talk about richard florida and all that but the the background to all this is a model of urban agglomeration that was happening you know up until two minutes ago as it were and then covid comes along and and not only freezes the model i think but raises fundamental questions over that model of agglomeration. In fact, through obviously through hybrid working, home working, we've seen a decentralization of knowledge worker activity that actually we hadn't seen before, even though the the, the, the capacity to do that was implicit in the technology from the beginning. And in fact, you remember, Kate, oh, and Glazer talked about it, that we all expected in the first generation of the internet for this to have happened. Yes. Um, and, and in fact, uh, as you know, my favorite named professor from MIT, Dave Autor, the the professor of, of motor vehicle robotics, I kid you not, at MIT, um, has basically said that what the one way to understand what's happened with hybrid working and COVID is that it's we knew it accelerated trends around retail decentralization and, and uh, home delivery and all that stuff, but actually it's also accelerated home working that he thinks was going to come over 20 years, but has come in one or two so what we're experiencing would have happened but it's the dislocation of this revolution that is you know sort of disrupting things now what i really want to talk about first though is i think you and i share not just a passion for the what the agglomerated city and its centers has brought us you know culturally economically the mixing of cultures you know I, know, I, i could prove to you that you know cultural creativity innovation identity democracy comes out of the agglomerated city, not the disaggregated rural areas or suburbs. However, let's move on from history to to say, I'm quite passionate about what that city gets you. I grew up in a, in a dispersed suburb, uh, craving what the city could give me, but I found a a fatalism and even a a kind of outburst of anti-urbanism broken out in some of my laptop class friends. Who are happily sitting at home you know in my eyes you know uh, s- selfishly undermining the city and other people's jobs and being introspective you know so all that rant uh, over you know what do you think about
1: i don't even know talk? how to respond to that because there's so much to unpack <laughs> yeah. and so i actually had to take notes as you were talking it was like being in the university <laughs> but class my wife pack. my wife
0: says the same by the way she has to take notes when i'm talking so there you go So
1: luckily i did take notes so i, I think l- let's just start with one thing and the the most important thing is irrespective of how good technological platforms are, human beings have analogue hearts. They seek to be together. The whole reason we have cities is because people actually are better when they are close together. And so I think that there is this fundamental drive to be with other people. And you can say that happens in a suburb, it happens in a city centre, that's true. I think the second thing is we captured a trend which said, I want to rebalance my life and I want to have more agency. And this idea that I have to get up at seven o'clock to be at my desk by nine o'clock because my commute is enormous. And then at the end of the day around four, I'm panicking because I've got to be home at six to get the homework done. You know, that was a terrible rat race life. And I think that we had increasingly fallen into the trap of becoming these point-to-point people who leave the house, go to work, leave work, go to the house. So the rebalancing is is probably very healthy. But but I think there were two other countervailing things that are happening here, which is Young people of all ages, at all points in time, they crave the bright lights of the big city. They are looking for what Richard Florida still calls the marriage market effect that you come here to have a big adventure, to find a partner, to prove yourself. And the second indisputable truth, which is that our city centre areas still have the largest collection of physical economic anchors, physical cultural anchors, higher order assets in the closest proximity, because they are the places in the city that most of us can most easily get to. So geographically, wherever they are, they're actually the heartland of our whole city. And they're an asset that belongs to all of us, which leads me to conclude that, number one, a city centre is a priceless asset. If we destroy those, we are destroying the social, the cultural and the economic fabric of our whole city. And we do that at our peril. We will become America in the 70s a suburban sprawl of people who have no community culture, no sense of social cohesion, no sense of normative values. And and I think that's something America has fought back against, and it's a trap we don't want to fall into. I think the second thing is that when we think about that city centre, we have to understand that it shouldn't be perceived as or be the central business district, which by title suggests a place of business only. It needs to be this exciting melee of, Cultural, creative, social, unexpected, outdoor, interesting activities that inspire a range of people to be there. It needs to be exclusive. That's, sorry, strike that. That's a terrible thing to say. It needs to be inclusive <laughs> and it needs to be a place of experience, which is what I was yes. actually uh, trying to sandwich together. That if we don't understand this broadening of experience and this deepening of inclusivity, the city will fail and it should fail because it's not working hard enough for our loyalty. So, You know, I I think that when you bring these things together, it brings us back to the word intentionality. As a community, as a series of urban stakeholders, we need to value the city, we need to get behind the city centre, and we need to understand its role. But that doesn't mean to say we do it by being a recidivist and going back to our old ways, which were also potentially not very good for us as individuals.
0: So I think that's right. I think it's not in a sense, Bouncing back," said the cliched consultant. "It's bouncing forward. Forward, yeah. Right? And I think, uh, and I think it's about reinvention. Uh, and I think what I'm worried about is there's a kind of laziness, complacency, even anti-urbanism in in this discussion. Rather than saying, look, guys, you know, there's lots of stranded assets in this centres. Otherwise, it's some stranded communities as well. You know, the other thing that Auto reminds us is that uh, blue collar workers were losing their jobs in the cities before. Absolutely. COVID and I certainly lost them during COVID and the lack of economic agglomeration is killing service jobs and hospitality jobs yes other people's jobs right so for me we have to really reinvent the economic mojo and the kind of uh mission of the Yes, yeah, I, I agree um not, and I not, think not as, as you say not as it was because it, it can't be and it will be I guess in a more hybrid universe but restoring the sociability. You know yes. I, I love i love that uh, the, the barcelona uh call of the mayor you know sort of uh, bring life back to the streets right so we have to bring life back to the streets but we also have to reinvent mass transit because you and i know that despite the idea that people are walking and cycling lots more and some people are in their local nearby hoods which i completely validate and i think it's great you know but at the same time there's only been a 50 percent return to offices in like manhattan but 110 percent return on the road so we have to you know because people are getting in their cars again in ways we didn't expect so this isn't all benign and uh, your point about young people you know they've been left out of the kind of economic and cultural progress that comes from having like you know office workplaces where they learn from other people and all that kind of stuff and thick labor markets which is why thing florida talks about you know and, and other people have talked about that's why why people went to these cities in the first place because if you lost one job you got another one. But how do you train yes. them now? So it's this. These are really fundamental things. And you you and I have talked before. You know you know I worry about the the regendering of the workforce. You know of leadership with you know because actually de facto women at home. Although there's all sorts of flexibilities from being at home, you can get excluded from office leadership in, in this process. So so for me there are dangers which we're just not paying enough attention imagination needs to break out again i think
1: totally and i actually i worry about young people not coming into the office i I work with well basically the whole world is young in comparison to me these days but what i what makes me feel concerned is the idea that when you are young and you're acquisitive in your career you learn by osmosis you learn by being around people who are talking about things doing things you see things that you don't necessarily get formally taught or you haven't formally learned you informally acquire these social skills and intellectual skills and skills around culture and cultural formation and creativity and i just however hard we try i just don't believe that our face to face you know you and i know each other quite well to see each other face to face it's comfortable to have a conversation but you'll go away now for the rest of the day and talk to 30 other people i'd love to have eavesdropped but i don't get the chance to because we're not in the same place so i think this um three-letter acronym i r l in real life is a really important mantra to keep at the forefront of our mind well, what might happen is we don't see this in economic terms today. In fact, we're all congratulating ourselves how well we've held our economy together digitally. But what happens is that in two years, in five years, in 10 years, the gradual erosion of culture, the erosion of skills to be creative will come home to roost. And we will rue the day to mix lots of metaphors that we didn't encourage our workers to come back to the office. But what it means, sorry, I saw you, you open your it. mouth to yeah. have an interjection and a talk right over you. That's very rude. Right. But what I think, we need to understand is that the not just the employee value proposition, i.e., what we do as a business to entice our workers to come back, but also the urban value proposition has to be different because we we need these people to feel that the spaces and places they come back to work and that they are located within are those that are aligned to what they not only need but want, feel comfortable in, feel excited by, are inspired to be part of. And if they're not, why would you bother?
0: Yeah, I mean Okay, two um, little bits of optimism, and then I want to go to a big piece of uplift, which is around the uh, urban glory that will be the uh, Olympics uh, in Brisbane. Uh, the two little bits of uh, possible uh, uplift, it strikes me, is, is one is around this agenda, is one is, a, on, the, on the one hand, I, I think people are just not understanding that if you can decentralise your job to Coffs Arbour, then it can be taken to Bangalore quite easily so uh so like I, for me it's not a stable proposition i think the the uplift though is something like this the uh that because rents have gone down in places like S- sydney and in fact more in sydney i learned than in many other cities and i think that's because of the nature of of two things one is the commute uh in some cities is is challenging and i think that's affected home working and the other thing is if you've got a big house and i think you know the suburban reality of much of, of australian cities is probably led to an exaggerated um, homework and response because you can work there but the the uplift i was going to suggest was this the rents go down that means other people can now go into the city center offices so we will see some churn and probably younger companies that probably didn't think they could afford to be there there's also this re relocalization of economic activity that we might actually interestingly uh but this might mean an end to euclidean rigid zoning you know we might see industry go back into our city centres to almost replace some of the offices and knowledge workers that have gone because of the relocalisation of supply chains going on. And the fact that modern manufacturing is just not as dirty as it was in the 1920s when we invented rigid zoning. That does mean public authorities being a bit more open to mixed use, it seems to me, and conversion. also
1: scientific endeavour, scientific endeavour, cultural creation. And in a way, what you're talking about is also like almost the resurgence of the fringe. So, the fringe used to be the exciting interesting edgy part of the city and increasingly it's just become the investor occupied yeah. um you bu- know bulk standard housing stock place that yuppies live in wouldn't it be great if we were actually seeing the the, the renaissance of a real fringe with its gritty elements its interesting edges that the permeability and diffusion between uses i think that would actually be a very good outcome of um of the covid era for our cities
0: I think also we're probably not noticing enough. Uh, I'm obsessively reading JLL and CBRE reports, and I find that, and I'm working on these things, that industrial land, the reinvention of industrial land is upon us, and that's a major restructuring element in our city. And some of these land uh, areas are actually quite close to city centers, and I I think we need to watch out for that kind of process is really interesting. The other uplift, which I think people are just not noticing, is that you know um, i used to make a lot of play when i ran the committee for sydney with the fact that the seven um, percent of australia's gdp came from the square mile financial services oh. district of sydney right which is equivalent to the mining economy of western australia the difference though and this is the challenge but there's still some uplift uplift in the story the challenge is that uh, the balance of payments of the one was different to the other we don't export our services as much as we export this stuff that's dirty Call coal, so that part of the challenge of Australia in, in the green economy is actually losing some of that wealth and balance of payments. But what it does mean, though, is that in order to replace some of that economic activity, it will mean an even greater decisive shift towards knowledge, knowledge economies and jobs, and it will mean our cities actually will become more important um, mm. as some of these, you know, remote areas that produce this kind of stuff in the ground becomes less important to the future of the country. So I actually think we're gonna end up with a more urban economy in this transition. And the issue is about, the issue is, last thing, the issue is about curating that transition. And in fact, that whole city's discussion in the future of strikes me that at the moment, I feel a little bit of a underpowered lack of understanding that this is a major curation process, urban change, economic change. And we hear very little about it, not just in Australia, actually, but internationally. The British system is not really discussing, you know, the, the new leadership of the, of the country is not really discussing the economic transition issues. We need to.
1: I think that's a very interesting point. And it, you made me smile, which of course is irrelevant on a podcast, but you made me smile because you're reading JLL and CBRE, and I'm reading John Julius Norwich and Alec Garvin. But I think they're almost telling us the same thing, yeah. which is, that over time, history, history shows us that cities reinvent themselves. They are actually quite agile. They go through periods of decline. They lose their competitive advantage against each other or, or just against themselves. And then they reinvent themselves and they find a new purpose. But but your point is really opposite, because over time, those cities that have reinvented themselves most powerfully, time and time again, are the ones with the best collective governance mechanisms, yeah, yeah. the ones that have actually been able to harness the power of all stakeholders to reinvent their purpose. and. So again, that would be the thing I really hold in my mind about if I could advise Anthony Albanese, what would be the what the, the Australian Prime Minister, for those of you who perhaps don't recognise the name. Or Albo you know, is
0: officially known.
1: <laughs> what I would say to Albo is, we really do need a Minister for Cities. We need some higher order thinking about the role of our cities and how they work together to support not just their own communities, but also Brand Australia.
0: So I completely agree with that. And just one last thought on, on that, which I've always wanted to say, Uh, about Melbourne, which I love, which we all should love, um, is that um, there's a kind of, um, uh, not quite mythology, but a a one-sided story about its recovery uh, from the 80s and 90s. All cities that lost their economic mode of production, that were much more industrial up until the 80s, had a period of about 15 to 20 years where Mm they were quite empty. Lots of people were not living in the the heart of cities, and they, they just kind of lost their population and their economic activity, and then reinvented themselves the the Melbourne self image, which is partly true, uh, is is that they kind of the city planners thought the laneways let's let's focus on urban design quality, and I, absolutely that that helped, but there was a prior order. This is the dispute with Richard Florida in a sense. There was a prior order, uh, economic shift to knowledge jobs, going on. That was the then the, the so the necessary part of it was this economic shift underway, but the important part of it was still creating places for them to live and to, to work. And so that is a big open design play. But there was an economic... I, so I suppose where I'm ending this particular section by saying that I think that we really do need to get our act together on public-private collaboration and governance are about transitioning and curating the next bit because I don't think it's just gonna happen naturally. I think there needs to be lots of imagination around the reinvention of our central spaces um, in the ways that we've discussed. So that's good. Now, uplift, right? So we're, we're this is the bit where you know this is like the um, remember the comedy series in the UK called Drop the Dead Donkey where which is which is essentially the lovely story at the end. <laughs> but I do generally think this is a good good thing to go to, which is you know uh, we know what the Olympics did for London, despite cynicism. Um, even Australians recently discovered how much they actually did like uh, the Commonwealth Games. And they could see the pride, the activity, the joy in Birmingham and the city, and the impact it was having on the city. So I think there's renewed enthusiasm for these kinds of things. Now you are heavily involved. You live in the part of the world that's going to have the Olympics. You, to my great envy, uh, you, you're now going to tell me your story about going to the to to the games. But before we get there, as you know, I've got a joke about myself, which is that uh, some of the things I say about myself are indeed true and you have to take this as it is but essentially i was involved um i, I feel like one of those uh, if you ever saw the woody uh um Allen films Zelig, great he was a kind of gray figure that turned up in odd places i feel like that person doing this run up run up to the olympics because i was you know i was either as a government advisor working working on the olympic legacy or i was working for the boroughs working on olympic legacy or i was working with lenley's on the olympic athletes village but you know like hooker by crook, I was there somewhere, and i I and we really, you know, and what's great about it was that the the boroughs, the councils, it was like from below. It wasn't just like a you know somebody landed in Olympics, and you know, the, the kind of councils and the boroughs and London government worked together to get it, improbably to go to East London. at the At the heart of it was an urban regeneration transformation case. And we kind of put together a compelling reason to go to. Uh, East London, but then had an idea of what we wanted to get out of the Olympics in East London, which was new new transport infrastructure, was uplift for people's aspirations, new job opportunities, new housing, but also kind of repositioning East London, you know, uh, in the in the market and decision makers' eyes. And the last thing, Kate, is that the that we came up with these programs, co- which is consciously trying to, with intention, as you would say, to to rebalance. An underperforming and disadvantaged part of London to come up to the kind of London average we call it convergence to uh, the convergence agenda Boris stole it later on to become the leveling up agenda but essentially it's a good idea of instead of just doing like you know random projects and stadiums and infrastructure and lovely things in themselves but trying to bring them together to have a concerted strategy for the long-term transformation of an area so I think actually and Rohan Moore wrote a very positive piece in The Guardian recently, unusual uh, positive piece in The Guardian about Olympic legacy. But, you know, there are universities there now, there's parks there now, there's jobs there now. I mean, there was quite a lot of grot in Stratford before the process started. Major transport connectivity, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, I, w- I would have a fist fight intellectually with somebody who said that wasn't a great thing to have happened. Now, it's going to come to Brisbane, right? This is, And I think it's fantastic. What do you think?
1: Ah, Look, I'm so excited and and you're quite right because I I went to the London Olympics and I tell this story quite often and when I tell it, I, I do sometimes get a genuine lump in my throat and I have to fight to control my emotion because it was the proudest time of my life. I was there with my children, they were a very impressionable age, I talked very passionately about being a Londoner, to step out into my city and see the city on display in this way that was so beautiful and welcoming and exciting and vibrant and dynamic and and the juxtaposition of these buildings and this community and this event was just something i i will remember the whole of my life it was breathtaking and when i went to the olympic park and i came in past the volunteers with their enthusiasm and you walk into this splendid place with this these incredible flowers the meadow, the canal, and you know, in my memory, it was a place of washing machines and white goods being dumped, and it was a horrendous place. And this place was heaven. It was the most beautiful thing I had seen in such a long time. And I think I, I want everybody to have that experience. I want every kid to feel that proud about their city. I want every older adult to be happy they lived that long because it is an extraordinary thing to actually put your city on display to the world, to invite the world in and to feel that proud of it. It is amazing and powerful experience that remains with you a lifetime. So that in itself is worth bottling. But I think when we look at London and Barcelona in particular, two examples of such powerful, enduring legacies, cities that were repositioned, that rediscovered their mojo, that reconnected internationally, that is a a, a phenomenal, intangible benefit to be able to deliver its momentum, that's how I talk about it. It, The Olympics can deliver before and afterwards a long tail of incredible confidence and momentum and joy. Um, And if we're able to harness that and capture that in Southeast Queensland, then I think not just Brisbane, but the whole of our region is gonna have this massive rising tide feeling to it uh, for at least a decade, two decades. And critical to this is how we think about legacy and that the legacy and the pre-legacy, or as I sometimes call it, the pregnancy of the Games, is, is the value that we're actually creating. So it's how you bring all stakeholders together behind a common vision of success for your place over time. It's not for your place for the event, it's how you bring forward your view of success and, and what is important to you. you. know, So for us in Southeast Queensland, it's about connecting all of our communities, physically, emotionally, economically, it's about building new economic opportunity. It's about the first nation story. It's about community and elite sport pathways. It's about fitness and health. It's not just about the physical infrastructure of the games, but the biggest opportunity, the opportunity I, I really want to impress upon people is the opportunity to embrace being climate positive and carbon neutral and to deliver just not the games overlay, but to build ourselves as a region that has this as a defining feature because from an economic social cultural and environmental terms this legacy will quite literally save the world
0: but i think the, the you know, almost the greatest legacy of the olympics in london was the transport consequences i mean it was quite well connected before it's amazingly well connected before now and it brings in lots of new private investment and just as kind of re, reinvented this part of uh, the city and the region what do you think about transport and olympic legacy
1: So first of all, I think it's great poetry, um, with finishing with my first love, which is obviously transport. Um, You're quite right, for both Barcelona, definitely for London and for East London, but even for Athens and for Rio de Janeiro, transport were incredible outcomes that have paid dividends, actually not before the event, but for a long time subsequent to the event. And transport, in my mind, sets us free. The ability to move wherever you want to move without your car balances our economic and social needs with our environmental imperative and it makes it easy to access all the opportunities that we have in front of us southeast Queensland is a really big region it's a very diverse region it's a naturally and economically vibrant region but it is quite difficult to move around if you don't have cars so I think that one of the important things for us having a uh, a games overlay that's got a number of clusters is, is how we're able to move within our city between those precincts and also across our region. And I'd really like to see us put some investment in thinking as well as uh, in the infrastructure about human movement at the micro scale, as well as at that more macro or maybe even meso scale. So for me, the transport is a really critical success factor for the long term competitiveness and livability of our region, as well as for the games. And I think it also comes full circle that if we can if we can be very intentional, conscious and deliberate about our investment in transport infrastructure, the precincts around those transport opportunities, the quality of place and the uh, the experience that we imbue into those precincts, not just for the Olympic Games, but forever, we're actually creating the most powerful legacy that our community and our city will have to leverage for 100 years. It's a hum- huge generational shift that we're conceptualizing, but it's, it's one we really need to invest in if we want to leave our region better than we found it.